The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. It's Good Friday in a Christendom on lockdown where churches are, quote, non-essential and thus must stay closed. Police in Greenville, Mississippi, raided drive through services at King James Bible Church and Temple Baptist Church and issued $500 tickets to every vehicular congregant in the parking lot. My God, my God! Why hast thou forsaken me? Well, the social justice pontiff who heads the Church of Rome has the answer. Pope Francis says that the coronavirus is nature's response to our refusal to act on climate change. If so, congratulations, it's worked. Another couple of weeks and the developed world's carbon footprint will be close to statistically undetectable. On the other hand, the biggest polluter on the planet seems to be getting off scot-free. China, having successfully exported its gift to the world to every corner on Earth, is now tightening up its borders to prevent what it calls the re-importation of the virus. I say it again. Let's quarantine China and not your Auntie Mabel. April 10th, 2020. From my house arrest to yours. It's your Stein Show Corona Copia. Everybody was Kung Flu fighting. Those stats climb fast as lightning. It was a little bit frightening Chi-cons of expert timing There were funky Chinamen From funky Wuhan town They were chopping bats up They were chowing them down It's an ancient Chinese dish And everybody says delish Chairman Z will book your flight You'll be in Milan tonight And everybody starts Kung Flu fighting Okay, let's start with a bit of good news We have a new record for the oldest Chinese virus survivor Cornelia Russ Who lives on the Dutch island of Guri Overflaki She was taken ill on the day after her 107th birthday. Twelve others in her church circle died, but this week, Mavrao Ras walked free and cured and pipped the previous record of oldest corona survivor, Bill Lapsius of Oregon, by three years. On this Easter weekend, we are reminded that in death there can be resurrection. When Larry Kudlow and the economists talk about what they call a V-shaped recovery, it doesn't get much more V-shaped than crucifixion on Friday and back on Sunday. That is unlikely to be the way of the global economy. I don't think uh, they're talking so much about V-shaped recoveries anymore. The World Health Organization now says this will be the worst downturn 
since the 1930s. Gee, thanks. Maybe you could have given us a heads up about that when you told us there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission and you uh, sat on your hands before declaring a pandemic. Question, question. Why is Beijing Bob, this non-doctor who likes to be addressed as Dr. Tetros, why is he still in office? He embodies the problem here. American experts, including a lot of so-called conservatives, enabled the rise of China these last 30 years. Beijing has now bought up pretty much everyone around the planet that it needs to buy up, from the uh, WHO to the NBA, if you recall the way those guys knuckled under to the Chicoms a couple of months back. Uh, another example, why are... America's big network news divisions so uninterested in bringing China to account. It couldn't be anything to do with the fact that they're owned by vast global entertainment conglomerates whose bottom line increasingly depends on profits uh, from product that fills those huge Asian multiplexes. What's the, what's the next stage uh, from not covering the story? apologizing if you accidentally wind up doing your job and covering it. The British journal Nature, which uh, notwithstanding its defense of bollocks like the hockey stick, remains one of the two most so-called prestigious science journals on the planet. Nature has just issued a formal apology for, quote, associating the virus with Wuhan and with China. It's got nothing to do with China. Certainly nothing to do with Wuhan. Lovely place to go, Wuhan. They're not in lockdown anymore. It's the, it's the planet's only party town. There are now 225 nations or territories, uh, colonies and the like, that have the Wu flu. That is almost a full set. And in 224 of those 225 territories, COVID-19 was walked in across the borders into that country from somewhere else. The only exception to that rule is China. It shouldn't be necessary to point that out to a science journal. Beijing Bob has sounded slightly nutty these last few days. He said criticism of him was racism promoted by Taiwan. Uh, the WHO honcho is Ethiopian, but when it comes to hating Taiwan, he's as gung-ho as his fellow commies in the Beijing Politburo. He said, quote, please don't politicize this virus if you don't want many more body bags, he says which coming from China's body bag man sounds rather like a direct threat. Nonetheless, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci has, uh, has said that he thinks uh, Beijing Bob is a splendid fellow doing a terrific job. I try, I try not to join in the conspiracy theories about Dr. Fauci uh, being an agent of the deep state and all that, I do find him generally irritating. I had this terrible dream last night um, that I was, uh, uh, I'd been in quarantine so long there was nothing to do except watch a rerun of Murder, She Wrote, with Angela Lansbury, in which, uh, what was that town called? Cabot Cove. They've been stricken by this mysterious virus. And, uh, and Jessica Fletcher's old uh, sweetheart is coming to the town to help her find out what's going on. And, and the old sweetheart turned out to be Dr. Fauci, uh, but he was played by Estelle Getty. I don't, I don't want to get into dream interpretation. I'm just saying that at this stage in the lockdown, Dreams are getting 
freakier. The virus is a fire. China's the arsonist and is handing out leaky hoses and soda siphons painted to look like fire extinguishers. The 30,000 feet view. Beijing loosed this thing, lied about it, got the WHO to endorse its lies, weaponized it to its strategic advantage. And as a result, every major economy except China has shut down and is impoverishing its citizens. But don't worry. The good news for Americans is that the first of those $1,200 checks from the federal government are rumored to have gone out yesterday. The bad news is that, quote-unquote, some Americans' checks will not be going out till September if there's still a United States post office or banking system by then. Hey, how are you liking them new police powers? Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Easter weekend in the United Kingdom under house arrest. So what can the constabulary do to make it worse? Well, Nick Adderley, Chief Constable of Northamptonshire Police in England's East Midlands, said what he calls, quote, the three-week grace period is over and he's taken off the kid gloves. We've had examples of people sunbathing in the park, he says. To those people, I am saying, your time is up. It's over for you sunbathers. Mr. Adderley is now threatening to do item-by-item searches of your shopping cart just to see whether you've got anything he regards as non-essential items, such as cigarettes or Easter eggs. Obey the law. Do not fall foul of the legislation that's now in place. We have given the communities three weeks to understand what is required and why. As from today, we will start to enforce that. I do want to make the point, though, that my message to the police officers here is one of common sense and discretion, as I said before, so we will not at this stage be setting up roadblocks. We will not at this stage be starting to marshal supermarkets and checking the items in baskets and trolleys to see whether it's a legitimate, necessary item. But again, be under no illusion, if people do not heed the warnings and the pleas that I'm making today, we will start to do that. So the chief wanker of Northamptonshire police is threatening fines and criminal records if you have something he doesn't approve of in your shopping basket. Does the law actually give him that power? As I understand it, only so-called essential businesses are being permitted to open. But it's the business that's granted that essential status, not the thousands of items within it. Uh, A supermarket is deemed essential. Uh, And it's hardly the citizen's business to determine whether a loaf of bread qualifies as essential, but a Bakewell tart isn't and is liable to confiscation uh, and fines and a criminal record. Furthermore, the degree of interaction required to have two wanker constables go through everything in your shopping cart or trolley, as they say over there, a word Doris Day was very amused by when I used it to her. The degree of intimate contact required to have two wanker constables inspecting every scotch egg and crumpet uh, will, in fact, spread the virus. The British police are demonstrating daily that they're simply too stupid to be entrusted with powers uh, they instantly began interpreting in the most officious and intrusive way possible. The fact that Nick Adderley thinks he's being benign and generous in merely threatening 
to institute roadblocks to search your vehicle for non-essential items is exactly why he's your Brit wanker copper of the day. Congratulations, Chief Constable. Jazz, Frank Sinatra, good old-fashioned rock and roll. Fill your ears with all sorts of music curated by Mark Stein himself at Stein Online. Riding along in my Music plays on at Stein Online through exclusive Mark Stein show performances. There's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. Biographies of great performers and songwriters and Mark's On the Town audio specials. Are we really happy with this lonely game we play? Chuck Berry to Cole Porter, Ted Nugent to Johnny Mercer. New specials added regularly. Put some records on by heading over to www.steinonline.com music. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Easter weekend in an unchurched Christendom. For those of a non-poetic bent, T.S. Eliot is the guy who wrote Cats. Well, sort of. He wrote some poems about cats, and his widow Valerie gave... Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber permission to set them to music. And that's how T.S. Eliot wound up winning two Tony Awards for Best Book and Best Score of a Musical with Valerie up on stage uh, accepting on his behalf. And very grateful as the Cats royalties ensured not only her own very comfortable old age, but the future of the publishing firm her husband loved, Faber and Faber, publishers of my own Broadway babies say goodnight, I'm pleased to say. Did the cat's bloke write anything else? Well, yes, he did. Lots and lots. Though I'm not sure anything else in the catalogue has the makings of a blockbuster musical. Thomas Stearns Eliot was born in 1888 in St. Louis, the scion of the uh, Missouri branch of a long line of Boston Brahmins who had arrived in New England in 1669, which is how... Eliot, in 1937, came to find himself in the Somerset village of East Coker, from where his ancestor, Andrew Eliot, had set out for America 268 years earlier. A couple of years after that visit to East Coker, Britain was at war, and Eliot had a bad case of writer's block, having written the first of his four quartets under the title Burnt Norton, after a Cotswold manor house, He titled the second East Coker as a way of seeing if he could use the structure of the first to write himself back into poetry. Its theme is ultimate English survival in the war against the Third Reich. And so the fourth section, written almost exactly eight decades ago, recasts the passion of the Christ in a wartime context that seems especially appropriate for those medical staff on the front line around the world this weekend. Eliot uh, presents a cast of stricken healers, the, quote, wounded surgeon, the dying nurse, the ruined millionaire who endowed the hospital. And yet the wounded surgeon still can cure us, if only he first destroys our sin. And so, in that paradox with which any visitor to operating room or dentist chair or inoculation clinic will be familiar. We are made worse in order to get better, a theme the poet ties explicitly to Good Friday 
in the final lines. First published 80 years ago on Britain's first wartime Easter in the New English Weekly by T.S. Eliot, the fourth section of East Coker. The wounded sergeant plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease if we obey the dying nurse whose constant care is not to please but to remind of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored our sickness must grow worse. The whole earth is our hospital, endowed by the ruined millionaire, wherein, if we do well, we shall die of the absolute paternal care that will not leave us but prevents us everywhere. The chill ascends from feet to knees. The fever sings in mental wires. If to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires, of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. The dripping blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which... We like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. From East Coker, the second of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And if you go to East Coker in Somerset, uh, once we're permitted to leave our homes again, you will find T.S. Eliot's ashes there in St. Michael's Church, a beautiful 12th century church. St. Michael's, like almost all other churches across Christendom, is closed this weekend. In spite of that, we call this Friday good. A poem from me to you. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Robert Rowe, a Lincolnshire member of the Stein Club from the United Kingdom, writes, Every day the number of deaths attributed to the Chinese virus are broadcast. I've never been able to ascertain how the figures were obtained. Are you able to enlighten me? This attracted my attention after I saw a figure for the number of deaths in the UK for 2018. There were 616,014 deaths registered that year, an average of just over 1,687 per day. The population of the US is about five times that of the UK, so the average number of deaths per day that year in the US would probably be in excess of 8,400. Every death is a personal tragedy for the family and friends of the deceased. But is the situation now any worse than in a normal year? We cannot correctly assess the impact of this pandemic without an accurate analysis of infections and related deaths. Well, uh, Robert, the truth is there's underreporting and overreporting. China 
underreported, which is a polite word for it, and breached its international obligations in doing so. And as a result, people are dying all over the map. But right now, what most non-lying nations are reporting are deaths in hospital, because that's just about the only thing they're up to keeping a track on. The BBC just the other day subtly changed its daily scorecard uh, from deaths from the coronavirus in general to what it now calls deaths in UK hospitals from the coronavirus, because there's also deaths in care homes, hospices, private homes, that the system is simply too overwhelmed to process right now. Are those hospital deaths accurately assigned? Well, Cause of death, quote-unquote, is a term of art. I remember arguing with the hospital about the cause of death they wished to assign my dear old mum because it was not what she died of. Uh, With AIDS, for example, you generally don't die of HIV but of something else it provokes in you uh, that would otherwise be non-fatal if you didn't have HIV, like Kaposi's sarcoma. Underlying conditions are conditions you're living with until something else comes along and suddenly you're dying with it. If your doctor says you've got a terminal disease and the next night you get shot at a 7-Eleven and because you're weakened by fighting your illness, uh, you die of that gunshot wound. No one says you died of that disease. Uh, Another factor intervened. What we do know, though, is that there's a lot more death around than there should be. In uh, Bergamo, for example, the local newspaper's death notices, which are normally one page, have been running up to 10 pages. Both Italy and Spain have been reporting daily death tolls almost twice as high as normal. And if that keeps going, it has profound demographic consequences. Uh, We know the cemeteries and crematoria can't cope, which is why Italy has soldiers driving truckloads of corpses from the north to the south. Uh, The new 21st century dead cart, as in New York City, where refrigerated trucks drive away bodies stacked on top of each other. Also in New York. There are photographs showing city workers digging shallow trenches for temporary mass graves in public parks because the morgues are full. Normally, about 20 New Yorkers a day die at home. Currently, it's 150 to 200 deaths at home. In other words, up to 10 times as many. No one will have the hard numbers on that for a month or two, if then, because the the tracking system is being overwhelmed. People keep talking about the infection rate being much higher than reported, which means that the death rate is much lower. But uh, at a certain point, it's numbers. America is large. It's not like Norway or Ireland. So the question in crude terms becomes, what number of dead people matters? On 9-11, it was 3,000 because people instinctively understood that they were dead only because someone did something to them as, uh, in fact, China did something to the world. Um, and, and, in fact, of that 3,000 dead on 9-11, they're already way above that in New York with this thing. You'll recall uh, Angela Merkel saying that 60 to 70% of Germans would be infected. So let, let's keep it simple. Let's say the next Chinese virus everybody gets. Everybody. So 300 million Americans get it, and it has a 1% death rate, this new virus, say. So 3 million Americans die. With a widespread contagion, with something easy to catch, it's not the rate, it's the hardcore number, because the number itself uh, is in danger uh, of overwhelming everything. Meanwhile, 
we're told to be encouraged because fewer people are going to New York hospital emergency rooms. Fewer people are going to hospitals everywhere. In rural Vermont, emergency room visits to the state's largest hospital, UVM, are down by 50%. Because if you've got something else, whether it's cancer or a sprained ankle, you don't want to go to the hospital because the hospital is where you go if you want to get this thing. Uh, So there are all kinds of other ailments that are not being treated right now. In fact, UVM in Vermont is sending out notices saying, please come and see us, even if it's only a hangnail, because they're not getting the ton of money they'd normally be getting. So they're going to wind up laying everyone off like your local pizza joint or espresso bar. Bottom line, the numbers are all rubbish. But the Italian death notices, the abandonment of continental care homes, the tenfold increase in home deaths in New York, the bodies left out in the front yard in Ecuadorian cities, all these are real and observable and tell you something odd and unusual is happening. The reliable statistics come later, if the statisticians aren't all dead. Mark Stein's Last Call. There's all kinds of music, but not a lot of music just titled, quote, music, unquote. Nevertheless, that's the name of a song by John Miles, produced by Alan Parsons, that in 1976 they took to number 88 on America's Billboard Hot 100, number three in the United Kingdom, and number one in the Netherlands. Here it is, played by the Swedish trombonist Ollie Holmquist. John Miles's lyric had it, music was my first love and it will be my last. The music of the future, the music of the past. And so it was for Ollie Holmquist. Completely self-taught, he started as a tuba player in the Swedish Armed Forces Band, then moved to the trombone and the Swedish radio big band, and the ABBA boys, Benny and Bjorn, and Quincy Jones and Jerry Lewis, and Manhattan Transfer, and he spent 35 years with the James Last Orchestra, a Euro phenomenon that came out of Germany back when James Last was in fact Hans Last, before he was persuaded that a nice English name like James would make him far more marketable across the continent. Opinions are divided on the James Last Orchestra. It was, in essence, a big band, but with a rock rhythm section, so... 
Big band fans thought he'd sold out to the rockers, and rockers thought he hadn't sold out enough. Uh, but he had some great arrangements that gave plenty of room for his star soloists. Here's Ollie Holmquist taking a turn on something called Sweet Lucy. a great trombonist at his very best, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 83, Ollie Holmquist. Good morning, worm your honour, the crown will plainly show the prisoner who now stands before you, was caught red and showing feelings, showing feelings of an almost human nature. Sir John Laws was an English jurist and I believe the longest serving Lord Justice of the Court of Appeal ever. With a name like John Laws, that might seem an obvious calling, but in fact he chose his profession because he chanced to read his dad's old copy of a biography of a former Lord Chancellor. Well, my, my father had a copy of the really rather poor biography of F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, that had been written by Birkenhead's son. And I read it, or perhaps I only read some of it, and I don't recall, as a young teenager. And I, I suppose I thought that as teenagers, perhaps are inclined to, that this was a very um, uh, romantic uh, profession with a lot of contest in it. And I remember announcing to my grandfather on August the 1st of my 13th year that I was going to be a barrister. I know it was August the 1st because that was the day we always went up to northeast Scotland for the summer holiday. He sounds rather genial there, and in person he was, but he was not a genial jurist. He became ever more activist, as they say, and his rulings thus became provocative and disturbing. I wrote a few years back in Maclean's about his decision upholding the sacking of a black Christian for declining to provide sex therapy lessons to gay couples. Lord Justice Laws ruled that, quote, law for the protection of a position held purely on religious grounds is irrational, divisive, capricious, arbitrary. Actually, it was the law of justice laws that became increasingly irrational, divisive, capricious, arbitrary. The ruling on legal protection for Christian beliefs would have been controversial either way, but to pile on the way John Laws did was most unjudicious not to mention his rebuke to the Archbishop of Canterbury for filing an amicus brief. Just a few months ago, Sir John felt obliged to state publicly that his own nephew's boss would be heading to jail if he defied the courts. His nephew is Dominic Cummings, the senior advisor to Boris Johnson, 
the UK Prime Minister mired in the legal disputes over prorogation. The suits themselves, a fine example of what happens when a land of law decays into a land of laws, capital L-A-W-S, whose judges intrude on ever more aspects of life and shrink remorselessly what his predecessor Lord Moulton called the realm of manners. The before the court is Why am I playing a Pink Floyd song called The Trial? Well, because Pink Floyd sued EMI, and that case too was appealed before Lord Justice Laws, who, notwithstanding Pink Floyd's view of the judiciary in that song, upheld the band's initial victory. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 75, Sir John Laws. If you're a fan of Olympique de Marseille, you'll know that music. There have been, to me at least, a remarkable number of footballers, that's uh, soccer players for our American listeners, uh, a remarkable number of footballers fell by the woo-flu, star players from all over Europe, all over Africa. We could easily do several last calls entirely devoted to footballers from four continents. Pap Duf was not a football player himself. Born in Chad to Senegalese parents, he became a French sports columnist, the first of many firsts. France's first black sports columnist, first black sports agent, and the first black president of a top-tier European sports team. After studying at the prestigious Sciences Po University in Paris, Pape Diouf started his career as a journalist, working for a city newspaper, and later became a football agent with clients such as Basile Boli, Joseph-Antoine Bell, or Didier Drogba. led the club between 2005 and 2009 and helped build the side that lifted the French Premier League title in 2010. There was to be one more first in a lifetime thereof. Too sick to be flown to Nice, Pape Duf died in Dakar and became the first Senegalese victim of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 68. Life is Music by Harold Arlen, lyrics by Ted Kohler, production by Hal Wilner. What Hal Wilner liked to do uh, was all-star tributes to musicians he liked, like uh, Harold Arlen, Charles Mingus, Kurt Weill, Leonard Cohen, quite a few of which I bought on CD without knowing he was the man behind the projects. But if that's your labour of love, it helps to have a steady income. 
So Wilna joined Saturday Night Live a couple of years after it got going as the youngest guy on the team and stayed until a couple of weeks back, by which point he was pretty much the oldest guy on the team with the near-parodic, laconic drawl of weary experience. He was in charge of the music for the sketches, for which his prodigious knowledge was a great advantage. As he was always at pains to point out, he wasn't the fellow who booked the musical acts, which was a whole other skill, and at which his track record was somewhat spotty. I never booked bands here, <laughs> but I was responsible for a few bookings, uh, Miles Davis and Captain Beefheart, both of which were considered disaster appearances. Miles had his back to the camera, which was driving them nuts. And Captain Beefheart has tones that a lot of people can't handle. And when he finished, not one person in the audience clapped. And one guy from the balcony yelled, Shit! Shit! The Clash was another one, too, that there was this rumor going around that they spread that they're going to go on live TV and do something outrageous. And I said, you know, I heard you're going to do something. You know, if you told us what it's going to be, we can help. And they're snickering. During the show, Cosmo Vinyl came running into the studio with a ghetto blaster. And the band stopped playing. Went to press a button to play something in the ghetto blaster. But it wasn't working. It's just nothing. Could ask for help, we would have been happy to help him. And the days dwindle down to a precious few. September. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus a day after his 64th birthday, Hal Wilner, producer of that unlikely pairing of Lou Reed with a song by Kurt Weill and Maxwell Anderson. And these few precious days I'd spend with you. But what with all the sheltering in place and the police checkpoints, I can't get within 70 miles. I'll be back this evening, North American Eastern Time, for the latest episode of our current tale for our time, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. And this weekend, it's an Easter parade of corona-negative diversions, including our Sunday song selection and Kathy Shadle's movie date. Happy Easter, happy Passover, stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.